This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. The annual Fort Cooper Days Battle Commemoration returns March 18th and 19th at Fort Cooper State Park in Inverness. This battle featured militia and volunteers fighting off a Seminole attack in the second of those wars. A militia captain rising from the ranks of private to sergeant and then officer is Howard Butch Nipper Jr. He is a proud third generation Florida cracker and he portrays a Florida cracker who picks up his musket and answers the call of duty to muster. Butch tells us all about a militiaman's life in the Second Seminole War and how modern living historians present impressions to educate, inform, and entertain the public. Butch Nipper, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you. It's been a long time. We're doing this. Butch, you describe yourself as a Florida cracker. What is a Florida cracker? Well, um, a lot of people use it as a as a disgraceful term because disgraceful term is for a white person, you know, white as a cracker. They really don't know what it really means. But to me, it was a Florida cracker, which is a totally different meaning whatsoever. Pretty much got their names from the whips. People would be sitting in town and they'd hear off in the distance, uh, whips are cracking. Uh, they'd be driving their cattle or their mules in with it. Uh, they'd be doing, um, ox carts, whatever to come in town to, Trader goods, and by the way, the whip wasn't used to beat the animal. The whip was used to pop over the top of the animal and scared to get it moving or get its attention to move. Born and raised, I was a Florida cracker, third generation. My people came down here in the 1890s with the construction of the Lant Hotel, the churches that were being built around here. One of my grandmothers was around during the time Teddy Roosevelt was down here with the Rough Riders and the army was all in town. She had buttons. I don't know what happened to the buttons, but it was described to me that she got the buttons for giving coffee to the soldiers. Well, the soldiers had to replace those buttons, so it was at least a kiss she got. <laughs> he said, those buttons. Yeah, I don't want to go any further than that. That was Grandma. <laughs> and you've given an impression as a member of the Florida militia, which indeed would have called upon crackers to serve with it in times of need. Well, militia, first off, everybody had to join the militia from 18, pretty much, until your commanding officer wrote you off as not fit for the military. You would meet once a month. There was any trouble, you know, like riding or anything. First off, if you didn't show up for militia, when the militia was called, you were fine. You went to jail. So you wouldn't really be riding in your own town. Because <laughs> if you didn't show up for the militia, you would go to jail automatically. <laughs> for this militia... Did those called up bring their own firearms? You would have a firearm, firearm equivalent to the military, by the way, and at least 40 rounds of shot. They pretty much showed up with what you wore, your clothing that you would farm with, that you would run the stores with, civilian attire. So the militia was made up of pretty much every able-bodied man. Well, who called up the militia? Militia could be called on by the president or the governor. As our friend Jesse Marshall reminds us, the militia can be called up to repel invasions, put down insurrection, and enforce the law. What would happen for, like, volunteers or a militia down here in Florida? You would get volunteers. Let's say general down here, Linville Scott, the War Department, he needs 5,000 more soldiers. 
Well, then they would go to the states. The president would go to the states, get in touch with the governors. The governors would, would raise 5,000 soldiers throughout the whole state. You didn't have to go. Most of the time the young fellows went because it was a way they could get money and everything and see the world. Most men had never even been outside their town, let alone, or the county, let alone the state. Now, whenever you came down to Florida, you would be sworn in, usually in St. Augustine, as a soldier. You'd receive the pay as a soldier. You would receive a clothing allotment. Most guys would just take the money instead just to replace, if they had to, to replace their uh, their clothing. If you had a horse, you would be paid for the horse, and then you pretty much marched your way wherever you needed to go, towards the St. John's River to a place called Picolata before crossing the river and going into Ocala or toward the interior of Florida. Or if you came all the way down into Fort Brook, you'd be sworn in there. Well, a lot of times in the drills, early drills and stuff, uh, where they hadn't had weapons brought to them, I mean, the state usually gave you a weapon. Most time it was surplus weapons for drilling, going through the manual arms, loading how to shoot your weapon, how to handle your weapon. But if you didn't show up, they would use boom handles, porn stocks, such things as that, just to go through the manual arms so they could start their training. So there was really no excuse for missing a muster call just because you didn't have a firearm. It would be almost like paying your taxes now. You pretty much had to do it. <laughs> but the muster also was not just a time of drill, drill, drill. Sometimes they'd have big parties. It was the weekend, you know, usually they would have a kegger and women would bring picnics and stuff like that. And they tried to make it fun. There were those in the militia and they were volunteers. What was the difference? Militia, if you came down to Florida as a, it was still a volunteer, but you came down as the militia, volunteer militia, you pretty much had a 90-day enlistment. A volunteer means you volunteered for years, just like a soldier could be called a volunteer because you volunteered for the service down here or you volunteered for the army for three years (laughs) there'll hardly be anything different even the volunteer militias you would have whole units that were wealthy enough that they would buy their own uniforms and they would drill once a week they just were more into the military style they would come down here and it would be like a whole company of soldiers the clothing between the militia and the regular army would be a little bit different the army would be more of the tight-fitting uniforms. It would be pretty much the same uniform. They would try to make it the same uniform. I know as an officer, even a militia officer, we have to duplicate the military officer's uniform as close as we can. Scott's manual had just come out, and I think it was in 35. And like I said, you train once a month. And then in 36, you were called into fighting. It was hard, so they pretty much stayed with the, the old Scott's version. Crackers and others in Florida were automatically members of the militia. How did the Armed Occupation Act impact them? The Armed Occupation Act, it would give you 160 acres. If you had a weapon, you had to join the militia anyway, you would get 160 acres. 160 acres is one mile by one mile by one mile. And you can find those, it was called an AOA, Armed Occupation Act. And there was parts of that where they would have amendments to it that if you got on the land and it was too rocky to find water or anything because you know, we do stuff on limestone they would actually give you another 160 acres but the only stipulation is it had to be touching your land some kind of way and at the same time you had the homestead act that was going on what have you learned from the general land office records of the time 
Well, we found out during the, found during the surveys we'll be looking for a certain fort, say Fort Cross. We know it's supposed to be there, but we don't see the fort there. Well, you couldn't live within two miles of a military establishment, a permanent fort. Pretty much whenever the forts got older and they quit using the forts or anything, they just left them off the maps. So you didn't really have to worry about that. Militiamen who entered federal service might get uniforms, but just as militiamen, in lieu of regular army uniforms, what did they wear? Wear your most comfortable clothes. Whether you're a farmer, you would want your labor gear, your labor clothing, which means you can move more in it. It's something you're comfortable in. And you would bring the firearm, whether it was the firearm the government gave you or your own firearm, showed up in rank, 40 rounds of ammunition. The firearm belonged to the company. They would get cartridge boxes. They would get bayonets. Most of the time, they didn't get bayonets. As a matter of fact, during the Civil War, whenever some of the armories were taken over by the Confederacy down here in the South, they were full of Seminole War uniforms and equipment, Redlock rifles or muskets, sky blue uniform with white belts. <laughs> Something they really couldn't use except for maybe the cartridge box. When or how often did they muster? It was pretty much your officer's call on that, or there was going to be a weekend. And they would have it set up, kind of like the National Guard does now. You'd have to come out. They wanted to see you bivouac. They were going to march you somewhere. You know, that would take a couple of days. There'd be nothing going on at home because all the men <laughs> were with the militia. How did they divide up the available militiamen? That was pretty much done by what they call militia districts which I think turned into the uh, counties later on, use the same boundaries. But then you'd have junior officers that would be different places, let's say Tampa and Brandon, or by the airport in Tampa and Brandon, like 20 miles difference there. So the word would get out by the officers, and then the officers would recruit their men, pass it on down to their sergeants, their corporals. The word would get out, passed. <laughs> had to, by law, you had to. Problem is, you don't get that better work done if you're in jail. <laughs> they would pretty much show up. Some guys liked it. Some guys, the younger guys probably did love it. The older guys, uh, I like this marching around. <laughs> Butch, we've talked about you being a cracker and how you portray militiamen. How did you get started? Back in the 70s, I was stationed in Kansas City, Missouri. I started doing Civil War reenacting out there. We did the big battle we did. We did some dog and pony shows. Everybody knows what that is. You know, little demonstrations and stuff. But the big one, we did the uh, Battle of the Head Bales, which was pretty cool. Actually, we had aid, and we lit it on fire and rolled it. I don't think I can get by with that nowadays, but <laughs> I came back to Florida and joined up with 7th Florida Company K and did a lot of Civil War reenacting, Gettysburg, lots and lots of the Lusties, Fort Myers, quite a bit. I was more interested in the civilian part of it, which is always fun. Oh, the civilian part of it was just a guy that was out defending his land. wasn't really in the service. You were too old or too young. You were doing what you could for the, the cause of the military. Salt. You would have a salt still. Make salt for the military. Or you raised cattle. Or you drove cattle. We always have a standing joke. The regulars don't like us because we're pretty much undisciplined. We dress the way we want to dress. We talk the way we want to talk. You can go up and talk to your officer unless he's a real stiff guy to have a conversation with you. We're... Regular military, you'd have to go through the chains of command and stuff. You would make arrangements where you could talk to the men, but you wouldn't have no foolishness or anything like that. In other words, you'd have time for idiots. <laughs> Part of why the men could do this is because they voted in their officers. They were voted in. Higher officers were uh, appointed by the governor. Some of them used it as a political stool. 
something to stand on and get their name out there. Because of the distances involved, for some it might be the only time they meet their neighbors. They knew of each other because of the militia training or militia drills. They could be 20, 30 miles apart, really don't know that each other that close except for the militia. And I'd like to go back on the militia again. Whenever you joined up, it didn't matter. You couldn't buy your way out as a rich man and a poor man were side by side, comrades at arm. Although not a military jacket, what type of coats did militiamen traditionally wear? It would be up to them, usually a wool jacket, either a, a roundabout, tail coat, usually a roundabout with more labor jackets. They would wear that for comfort. Even the town people wear that for comfort. Some of them, that's all they had was a tail coat or a frock coat. Most times it was hot, they would show up, just a vest on. And uh, military uniforms were cut tight. I mean, they were like a second layer of skin on you. The wool, they used wool, military used wool. Summer months, you would go to cotton because cotton... Is cooler, but the wool, if you put the wool on and you leave it on all day, it actually adjusts to you. In other words, the living material, what it does is whenever you're hot and you've left it on, it adjusts to your body. That means that the weave will actually open up and loosen up, let the air in and cool your body down. In the winter, when it was really cold, it did the opposite. It would tighten around it to lock in the, bat, the body heat. But sometimes in the hot weather, especially down here in Florida, it was just too doggone hot. And they had a white summer uniform that the military would wear. And pretty much the same thing, another glove to fit your body. Where the militia was wearing whatever their uh, vocation was. If you were a farmer, you were wearing nice, loose-fitting clothing, laborer's jacket, which is more, it's just the same thing as a roundabout jacket. It's just open a little bit more, almost like it's, a little bit one size too big for you, so you did have room to move in it. Military jacket, your fit tight. The reason why it was made tight, it was actually formed to make your shoulders stand up and your neck stand up at the top. You were stiff in that thing. You had no choice. <laughs> for the record, what is a roundabout coat? A roundabout is a jacket that sits up high. During the Civil War, they wore them as uh, shell jackets. They called them shell jackets, but Back, the term back then was a roundabout. A tail coat is like a tuxedo coat and it has the tails on it. It was usually cut high, just like the roundabout. It was in between the roundabout and frock coat. In other words, it was a roundabout with a tail on it. Frock coat was a roundabout with a skirt on it. A hunting frock is something totally different. A hunting frock was usually a cotton material and usually had some fringe on it. They really weren't worried about a camouflage color back then. They didn't necessarily have green and brown or anything like that. They could then black with white fringe on it. It was part of your civilian attire. You would use it to hunt in, so you didn't get your everyday clothes dirty from hunting, bloody, happy. Go into a wooded area that had just burnt. <laughs> you get messed up quick. They would have pockets on it big enough to hold a hair. <laughs> At least one rabbit in each pocket. You'd have usually two on the hip, and uh, you would have two on your breast for extra ammunition. It usually had, it would button at the neck. Outside of that, it had no other buttons. The front was open. You would pretty much wear it like a robe went around you. You would use your belt to hold it together. Now, also, the advantage with that is, like I said, it was oversized, and you could fill the breast in with hay or leaves or whatever and keep you warm. And also, if it was warmer, you could actually unbutton the neck, crawl out of it, and it'd still stay on your waist. Kind of like tying a sweater on your waist. <laughs> 
One of the features of the regular army uniform was the cover, and in this case, the troops had a risque name for this forage cap. They usually used seal, muskrat, coyote, whatever fur they could get, and they would make the gig hat out of it. A gig hat is made to fold, so it could go in your pack, it could go in under your belt for carrying easy. It was like the baseball hat at the time, and the military adopted it. The gig hat was the civilian style. Out of, they called that Moroccan. It was a lighter leather goatskin. The funny thing is, it's a gig hat. So back in the 1830s, a gig was uh, female anatomy. Kind of like what they call a, what is it, an overseas cap now? Butch, you've moved through the ranks of the militia, from private to sergeant to being an officer. What is that experience like in those different positions in an army unit? I got invited to come to one. Started off as a private. Put together a pretty quick kit. Didn't take much. I was doing Confederate at the time borrowed some uh, leathers, which are totally different leathers, and Wetlock Musket, I enjoyed it. It was part of history that I never even heard of, even being born and raised in Florida, never even heard about it. I got my interest in that, finally worked my way up. I was a sergeant for a long time. Steve Abel came down here, and I worked with him quite a bit. That's where I learned how to become an officer with him. We went through all kinds of things, and each one of those steps, you have less fun. I mean, it depends on how you make it fun. A sergeant, he has to worry more about his men. He has to make sure everybody's in line. Same thing back then. Got to make sure they're doing it safely and they're taking care of it. He's also in the battle, where if you're an officer, lieutenant on up, your safety's in your hands. And we're fighting Indians. (laughs) They can come on our flank anytime. You really get to use the commands and the exercises that you've learned, how to defend your flanks, be ready for anything. It's really fun. I mean, the Seminoles actually make it fun. <laughs> They're Indians. They're not meeting us like a Union Army if I'm doing Confederate or Confederate if I'm doing Union. It's pretty much scripted. Now, we're semi-scripted, but you got to listen to the commands because they could change any time. I learned a lot of stuff. I own my cracker skills, <laughs> drinking pine needle tea. Some guys didn't even know how to use lighter knots to start fires with or keep fires going. It's different things. How to cook over an open fire, the practicality of just surviving, actually living through it. Not a reenactor, I'm a living historian, so I actually know what a sergeant should do. I knew how a private, what he should be doing. I know what a sergeant should be doing, lieutenant, captain, right on up. We have done some book learning. We've done the Scott's manuals. We had to refer back to the, I think it was the 25 uh, method drill. A lot of people want to go out. Even the Civil War guys want to go out. They want to fight. How they would do it in the book, columns, men and everything, were Seminole War, we got in a wooded area. We would go into one single file, which was called an Indian line, and you would work your way through the bushes, through the trees, however that way, and then you could stop, turn to the flank. You had to go into a line of battle. First guy would peel off right where he's at, and the other ones would peel off the side of him each time. Maybe like a big serpentine snake going around to go in line. Actually, pretty fast. I've actually exercised this when I was a, a lieutenant during Civil War, and we actually had a tactical. I started using that. I was, I was getting on their flank. I was moving faster than they could even think, especially in a skirmish drill. Tell us how you prepare for a living history engagement. You start getting your stuff ready. You would start practice on your first impression, even before that, months ahead of time with your facial hair, how you want to be seen. And then once you got there, you would try to fall into character, find somebody that's fallen into character, 
pretty much that night you would sit around, talk to each other, and it's hard. You'd have to go in and out of character because some people just don't know how to do it. You become a person of the past, and I found this with a lot of Civil War reenactors. All they want to think of is 1863 or 1865. That's it. Nothing before, nothing after. So I always try to picture before and after. It was always the pecker wood. I was always the little guy that was fighting the battle, not the big battles or anything. The little guy that was in the battle. What did he do? How did he survive it? Well, like I said, we make it complete for a living historian. In other words, what were you doing whenever you joined the military? Or what was your civilian duties as a militiaman? What was your civilian chores? And then you make a persona out of that. You have a wife back home. You have youngins back home. What do you do? You handle the farm or you're a constant. What do you do? <laughs> you're a civil servant. You own a store. That's what makes it fun is coming up with the persona on that. And that a, a living historian will go take that step further to go into that. Once you'll take the step further to learn more about the soldier, way of life, how he, at the end of the day, he didn't go into a tent and crawl in a sleeping bag. He pretty much, well, on the marches, they pretty much just fell in place. Not every fort was a fort like you want to think it is, like Fort Apache. Some of them were. A lot of them were. Some of them were just logs stacked up, some kind of uh, barricade that you could sleep in, have some kind of protection. You know, you'd have your pickets out there with their little barricades and stuff set up, guard duty being pulled. But pretty much you were so tired, you just fell down in place whenever you stopped somewhere. And that was pretty much the idea, so you wouldn't be out choking and playing around. <laughs> you were up before daylight and, and you marched all day. So you might break for breakfast and you might break for lunch. Might, I said. Depends on if you had to be pushed a little bit. How did the ammunition for the firearms provide flexibility for soldiers who were out there sleeping on the ground? Well, there's various ammunition you can use for the musket. You had the regular solid shot, 69 caliber round ball. And you've got bucking balls, so to that 69-caliber round ball, you would add three buckshots across the top of it. So you would have one that was trying to hit what you were aiming at, and the other three were to whoever it may concern. And also, being a smooth bore, you can actually use buckshot in it. Could you load them that way with rifles? Well, the rifles, the rifles could do that, but they were usually smaller caliber, and... Well, this is the problem the Seminoles had. First off, they didn't have that much material, so they never had scrap material. And usually a rifle, whenever you're in a combat, it takes a patched round ball to get any accuracy out of it. So they'd probably have a good accurate shot on the first shot. And then uh, after that, it took longer, so they wouldn't patch. They wouldn't put a patch in there. When you put a patch in there, it doesn't tighten the ball in, so it ends up like a musket. So the ball is wobbling around in there when it comes out. They all had flintlocks. Some of the Indians, uh, when I think whenever they first came out with the cap locks, they got some cap locks before the military got the cap locks. Civilians had cap locks before the military got cap locks. The understanding with the military is <laughs> they're going to waste ammunition. <laughs> the Seminoles had rifles, and they used those rifles to harass the soldiers while they were marching without giving away their own locations. A lot of it was compared to Vietnam. Well, you know there's an enemy out there because he's shooting at you. If you've seen them, you usually got a glimpse of them. And sometimes they just get up and walk away, you know, out of range or whatever, where you really couldn't get them. If you ran after them, you'd never find them because they knew the land. 
and you were <laughs> being harassed the whole time. So a small body of uh, Seminoles could harass a whole army pretty much. Well, you're on a march. Usually it's a 30-mile march between forts. So it would hinder you during your march because all of a sudden you're being slowed up, one. So that means you'd get later at whatever post you're going to stay at that night. A nagging harassment, usually the whole time. The Seminoles never really declared war. It was just groups within the Seminoles that went out and fought. Somebody didn't like the way something was going. The hell with it. I'm tired of this. <laughs> Who's with me? They would go. Now, if war was declared, usually the women would have a lot to do with that. Now, the women owned everything. They were the givers of life. They had the final say-so if they actually went into war. You didn't have to. Nobody thought of you any other way, even whenever some rebel rouser got together, you know, wanted to fight. Nobody thought anything about you not going in. The Indians were slick. I know that. They try to be slick today, you know, at the reenactments and stuff. And they're, they are. I'll give them credit for that, but not as slick as they were back in the day. <laughs> and some of that, some of that is probably because it's just joking around now. But whenever we do reenactments, whenever we're being harassed, whenever we, the main thing, we try to do battles. We don't do the full battle. We do a, a part of the battle, you know, like the right wing, the center, the left wing, just a, a small version of, of the battle what's going on in the battle. How has the spectacle changed over the years that you've been participating in them? I was told, like, some of the first aids, this is funny, some of the first aids, they didn't have the gig hat. They couldn't get the gig hat. Nobody knew how to make a gig hat. And they would use visors, leather visors with paper bags that they would paint black. So that was some of the early times during it. This is funny. Some of the early Alustis, I heard guys talking that uh, they would actually give you a firearm, and they were usually little Springfield trapdoors. <laughs> then you could buy it for like $150 or something after the battle. It's gotten more and more expensive because every time something new is happening, everybody wants it, and then the prices get jacked up on the stuff. Like I remember nobody had jean cloth. We were pretty much wearing butternut or gray, just regular wool, which is okay. But then jean cloth came out, and... We were something else. So we went to Gettysburg in butternut uniforms. I did a picture of Gettysburg. We're wearing the butternut uniforms. And it's funny. One of the guys is, well, you can see me back there as a sergeant. The other guy looking at the camera is Jack Coleman. The other guy in front of him is Matt. That would be Matt Milnes, a fixture at Living History Representations. <laughs> Matt was a young Young, and he made his way to Gettysburg, came up to Gettysburg. The sergeant, you're always talking the cartridge boxes. He never brought no ammunition. He didn't bring no rounds to Gettysburg, of all places. But everybody had the giving ammunition. Oh, man, we all gave him five rounds of ammunition. I want to add that Matt continues to do Seminole War reenactments and is a leader among the group. Ensuring all the young people who come out after him are well supplied with the ammunition they need. So you, Butch, had a little bit of fun with Matt out there. So I'm there, I'm putting ammunition in. And I look down at my feet and I find a toad frog. <laughs> and I look at Gettysburg, what's a toad frog <laughs> doing right there at our feet? I put it in this cartridge box. <laughs> and somewhere during the battle, he was right in the heat of battle during biggest charge. Where we're loading and firing as fast as we can, and <laughs> he come eye to eye with a toad frog, almost bit its head off. 
thought it was a cartridge. <laughs> Scared him to death. It was funny. And you have a little bit of fun with the recruits and their earnest questions. And one of the common questions they always ask is, where do you go to the bathroom? I said, oh, we go to the sinks. And of course, our eyes get real big, you know, like a sink. No, not a sink. It was a trench. And you just went in it or you squatted over it and did what you had to do. The initial calling it a sink. <laughs> Kids are thinking something else, a bathroom sink or whatever. <laughs> As an officer, you have a certain responsibility and a certain example that you must set. Tell us about that. As an officer, I hope you notice what I do. You eat, you drink, then I go. And that's the way an officer should be. He shouldn't be the first in line. He shouldn't be, he shouldn't be a hog. <laughs> you think more of your men than you yourself. So I try to do that. I do that in Preston. Come out. Let's have some fun. And you can also make sure that they're properly outfitted. Even the guys that do Civil War, we can work around it. We can even use your musket. We can work around that. We can put you on a park flank where you're not right in front of the crowd. And if you got a flat lock, you usually go in front of the crowd. So... If you just want to come and just be a soldier for the weekend and learn some of it, come on out. We're going to have fun. We'll make it have fun. You're teaching somebody. You, you see these people in wonder because they've never heard of this stuff. They've never seen this stuff. I've had people ask me, well, are you, you Yankee or Confederate? And I go, mm, I don't know. No, not at this time period. We were all federal. Right? We've had guilt show up and we have to really tell them, you know, that's not 1830 normal. 1830 normal is your trousers and the French fly was in. So you can still wear your uh, Civil War trousers if you want. We'll work around everything else. And you strive to ensure there are no modern accoutrements on the reenactors. Oh, yeah. Always. 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 That's the number one thing. You don't want to give them a false impression on anything. Look, they had wristwatches back then. <laughs> What advice do you have to those who are in the hobby? Endeavor to persevere. Always keep trying to make yourself better. Work on your first impressions. Work on your persona. Work on your clothing. We make everything. If I can't help you making it, Archie can make it. We make our own shoes. We make, uh, which I need to go back on the shoes here. Shoes were round-toed. They were round-toed during Napoleon's days. I think it even goes further than that. So the round-toed shoe was in. It was just... The, the last had to be imported, and the last that they made the shoes in America were square, so you got square-toed shoes. Now, I don't mean they can make round-toed, which they did. They had more last to uh, make the square-toed shoe than they did round-toed shoe. And then sooner or later, it got pushed back. Around the Civil War, got pushed back to there was becoming more and more shoes being made with round-toed. So if you had a square pair of shoes, guess what you were called? A square. <laughs> A uh, square. And what do we consider a square? So my weird older clothes, you know. <laughs> a young gent now would be nice to, especially militia, you're doing civilian. A lot of us have civilian attire. There's a lot of civilian stuff you can use. Like I said, a round-toed shoe. We can convert clothing. We can convert jackets. We can make our own. I've even made shoes before. which You know, they were squares, but they didn't come out half bad. I think somebody's still wearing them. <laughs> How might one of these recruits prepare for coming up to drill? Scott's manual wouldn't hurt. Just keep your ears open. Listen how the guys are talking. Listen what they're saying. Learn from that. They're more than happy to, to teach you when somebody's there and when somebody isn't there. Civilians I'm talking about. Don't worry about a musket right off the bat. 
get the other stuff. Show us that you're interested. How do I make my pants? Well, the pants are simple. They're like uh, scrub pants. They actually did have a pair of trousers that were called a two-piece, which was just like a scrub, except that, of course, they were dropped in front. And with no side seams, it was just uh, the crotch seam down the inside of the leg. Uh, roundabout, it's pretty easy to make. Patterns for that all over the place. We've got a pattern. A friend of mine, Archie, actually has the period formula in taking your size and making your uh, clothing. I've used a lot of his patterns. The young people have to actually keep it going. I had my grandson in it as a bugler. Last year, he finally got to carry a weapon. And we went through the bugle calls and everything and oh my god nothing like civil war nothing like anything you ever heard what are some events that you recommend dates always good Oklahoma is a good one uh the one we do mostly and our big event is cooper Fort cooper up in inverness and that's coming up weekend of the 18th butch our listeners won't forgive me if i don't ask about your hat tell us about that hat what would you call that a chapeau it was like an admiral's hat, but it was turned sideways, almost like a tombstone on your head, and decorated with feathers and uh, insignias and all kinds of stuff. They were flamboyant to make the officer more flamboyant. <laughs> it is, it's an eye catcher. <laughs> As we close, what would you like to add, Butch? I'd like to thank you and thank a lot of my friends, Jesse Marshall, Matt Vines, uh, Jack Coleman, Oh, man, let's just keep going on and keep growing. Butch Nipper, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you for having me. All righty, friend, you take care. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminalwars.podbean.com or seminalwars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.